1: Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
2: The men on the ground believe that what they're doing is they're creating an army So the United States military, the regular military, the tanks, helicopters, guns, and and parachutes types of guys don't have to put boots on the ground in Africa. You're listening to War
1: College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt and Jason Fields. Hello, welcome to War College. I'm Matthew Gall. And I'm Jason Fields. A report dated a few years ago said U.S. Special Forces were operating in more than 90 countries. Recently, we learned one of those was Niger, Africa. And the only reason the public knows anything about it is because of four fatalities among the U.S. troops involved in the fight. This week, we're going to talk about what happened and what America's military is doing in Africa. Joining us are former Green Beret and current Softwrap.com reporter Derek Gannon as well as show favorite Joseph Trevithick, who's been following America's wars in Africa for years and currently p- reports on them for thedrive.com. Okay, so let's get the basics out of the way. Derek, we'll, we'll start with you. What what happened? So basically what, what happened, what we know and what we found out over at
2: SoftRep, uh, pretty much within a couple hours of the incident, was that a Green Beret team that was uh, – there in Niger during on a JSET, or a joint combined training exercise with the Nigerian government and military, were assigned to about 30 Nigerian uh, special troops out of an intelligence brigade uh, out of the Nigerian military. And they were in the the southwest region of Niger in the Tillaberi region, just outside of a village called Tongo Tongo. Now, their mission initially was to basically find ground intelligence. I'm going to use that word very specifically. On a individual with a known Al Qaeda in the Maghreb and Islamic State in the Greater Sahara ties that was operating in this in the southwestern region of Niger, doing some cross-border operations. Now, what they did was they went to that village under uh, local intelligence to to try to what's kind of coming out is not maybe even capture him, but more than likely collect intelligence on his operations. And then, if they could capture what we believe is uh, the Islamic State in the Greater Sahara's leader, his name is Abu Walid Sarhawi. Uh, they got to basically they got to that position. He and his folks were not there, so they started to return back to their their base camp in the Tillaberi region of uh, Niger, and they stopped over near a village called Tongo Tongo. And so basically, they stopped in the village of Tongo Tongo. To for have the Nigerian military use it as an outpost and they were resupplying there. Uh, the Green Beret team that was there was a force of 12, uh, with as as of yet unknown number of special forces support soldiers, namely the, the two that were that were killed, uh, Jeremiah Johnson and, and La David uh, Johnson were support soldiers, and they were mainly using those folks as uh, drivers of the, the uh, lightly armored uh, technical vehicles or four-wheel drive vehicles that they were using in the region. So what they, the Green Beret team and the Green Beret command did was they split the team up uh, half and half, like we usually do. Half of them stayed with the convoy, the other half uh, decided to have a meeting uh, with the local leaders, so what we used to call a key, uh, key leadership uh, engagement or meeting what is known now as elements of the Islamic state in the greater Sahara that's being led by this Zarhawi fella, knew of their whereabouts. The region of Southwest region of Majer is a very, uh, Fulani nomadic tribe heavy, uh, which, do, which, uh, the ISIS in the greater Sahara, AQIM and Boko Haram, uh, recruit from heavily. Uh, and it is believed that the neighborhood that they were in or village that they were in were sympathetic to the Islamic state, uh, ideals, so to speak. And, uh, were basically delaying the Special Forces team from leaving the actual village itself so they could uh, allow these terrorist forces to set up an ambush, which they uh, did. In the It was about a 50-plus size force, split them in half, and the team was pretty much left on the ground without air support and and fought these folks for about an hour until the the, uh, French mirages flew overhead and the French Special Forces with their Pumas showed up. Can we talk for a minute about what this mission was really all about.
0: I have a question that, for me, spans across the whole plan in Africa. Now, I can make it a little more specific than that. (laughs) But who is Sarawi? And we think he's a high-value target. What does that even mean in a case like that? Do we think this guy is coming here to the United States? Is he really going to come to my house and blow it up? I mean, try to... If you can explain, like, who these guys are and why we're there, that'd be great.
2: Well, I'll answer your last question first. Absolutely no, Zarhawi or the Islamic State cannot nor will come to the United States. That's their dream. They do not possess the manpower to travel to the United States. So who is Zarhawi? Well, that kind of delves down into the history of the West African sub-Sahara region of homegrown terrorism. Zarhawi came from a group known as the Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb. Now, that's an amalgamation of, of a couple West African uh, Salifist-leaning uh, terrorist organizations that have been operating in the Western, the Western African uh, Sahel region that the French have been dealing with for years. And uh, one of the main, main forces of the Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb is, is, a, is a group known as the Al-Marbutan. And I, I'm I, I can't do a lot of good French accents, so imply the French with that name because it's it it is Algerian French. This group was is led or was led or is led, because I'll get to that point in a second, by a man named Mokhtar Bel Mokhtar, otherwise known as Lahore or the One Eye or the Marlboro Man. Now this guy, this guy's an interesting guy. He's been around he's been around the jihad since the since the late seventies, early eighties uh when he was uh he traveled from west africa his areas in algeria where he's from to afghanistan in the early 80s and got trained in the bin laden camps uh when you know unfortunately we were supporting the Mujahideen against the soviets learned all of that information and all that fun stuff in the camps the bin laden camps in in, uh, afghanistan and that's where he lost his eye actually uh he was juggling a soviet grenade as a joke during a training exercise and you know i think he, he dropped it and lost his eye he came back to africa after that and and uh, brought his al-qaeda ideals with him and started up small groups of mass brigade uh ones who bathed in blood the Al and then it just became he pledged fealty to the, the the uh al-qaeda central as we call it and reflagged under the Al- al-qaeda in the maghreb uh known as al-bar mutain now Zarhawi. Was an up-and-coming, he's a young guy, he's an up-and-coming commander who was, who was it's been rumored that Mokhtar himself groomed this, this young man into being a Salafist leader. Mokhtar, Bel Mokhtar, we like to call him the Teflon Jihadi because nobody really knows if he's dead or not because he's, the United States has said they drone struck him four or five times. Uh, so Zarhawi became kind of disillusioned with the Arab strong ideals of Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb. And was really, really, really enamored by uh, al-Baghdadi's uh, de- declaration of the caliphate and the way the Islamic State is kind of a younger, more more social media hip, you know, apocalyptic terror group. Uh, he decided to take his uh, brigade of his loyalists with him, uh, sliced off from the al-Qaeda in the Maghreb. Uh, pledged his fealty to uh, al-Baghdadi and started raising a black banner of the Islamic State and named it the Islamic State in the Greater Sahara. And this was in late 2016. Since then, a lot of these West African regions around there has a lot of nomadic tribes. And then there's a bigger one, the biggest one called the Fulani tribe. Uh, He began to recruit heavily from the Fulani, as well as another group that does that as well is is abu bakr shakao's uh Boko Haram which is uh situated in the chad Lake chad basin, which has been operating with impunity in in southwest uh niger uh he has you know caviar dreams of becoming the man who uh reunites the the Maghreb, if you will, with the, the caliphate. And, uh, you know, that, and that's where we're at right now. He's been in a heavy, heavy recruiting uh, binge in along the tri-border area, the Burkina Faso, Mali and Niger. Joe,
1: you've been covering the American military in Africa for years. What's how does all of this fit in with the big picture there?
3: This has been going on for some time, and recently at a, at a unprecedented press conference, really, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph Dunford, pointed out that the mission in uh, Niger has been going on for at least two decades, and it, it predates the 9-11 terrorist attacks. and uh, It's become uh, significantly more important since the collapse of Muammar Gaddafi's regime and his subsequent execution in Libya following a uh, Western-backed intervention there in 2011. And he had been more or less uh, holding back a number of uh, the nomadic and other sort of terrorist groups that we've just heard about in, in great detail. Uh, and a significant number of those uh, long long time not just jihadis but you know their their Tuaregs and their Fulani, and there were other people who had a, a variety of disparate grievances um, against a number of different regimes uh you know Muammar Gaddafi had been very uh, impressed by their reluctance in many cases to acquiesce to the government of Chad who he had waged a war against and so you know these these people had been in the region for some time and after Muammar Gaddafi's regime collapses they they get to get their, their guns and they raid a few uh, state arms dumps and they drive straight across the desert into northern Mali and precipitate a crisis there that ultimately leads to a coup uh, that overthrows the government in that country. And then the situation completely goes off the rails, prompting a U.S.-backed French intervention. And that's in January 2013. And that brings sort of to the fore the latest incarnation of this really long standing mission that is now uh, very much concerned with providing support to this ongoing uh, counterterrorism peacekeeping effort that is both African and French predominantly in Mali. Um, There is an ongoing crisis in Libya that that has taken on a a number of new dimensions in the past couple of years. There is, you know, what we've already heard about these uh, crises um, in the tri-border region on the other end of Niger uh, due to Boko Haram. Um, And so Niger has... uh, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, uh, become an exceptionally strategic country located right in the middle of this very bad neighborhood, and the United States begins to expand its presence there in particular. These individuals who were ambushed in Niger earlier in October were conducting a mission in support of. The, of uh, this overarching counterterrorism campaign plan which is nicknamed operation juniper shield mm-hmm. and so that's that's what's driving this this strategy um throughout this portion of africa the the uh, northern and, and western region of what's called the sahel and you'll hear this and the sahel is a term for basically where the Sahara desert ends, but before true sub-Saharan Africa begins. And it's this intermediate sort of desert scrub portion of the continent that has uh, a ton of what uh, we like to call ungoverned space, where central governments simply do not have the capacity to exercise their authority. They may not even know what's out there in terms of the basic geography. A lot of What the United States has been doing over the last decade has been just helping countries like Niger map out their own country because there's not a lot of population centers. And that's exactly why these terrorist groups can can drive about in their technicals and flourish with significant impunity is, is just because it's it's exceptionally difficult to maintain control over vast areas that are virtually inhospitable. So I mean that's that sort of gives you a broad picture of what you're talking about here and why it's so so fluid and why it can be so difficult to to get a grasp on it for for people who haven't been following it for so long.
0: That makes so much sense. And Niger is also, if I understand right, it's one of the absolute poorest places on earth, right? And uh the government has been remarkably unstable and they've had a number of coups in the last few years too. So they're not going to make much in terms of partners for the United
3: States. Well, I would. I just want to jump in there. Uh, they did have that sure. coup in in 2010. Um, since then, the government there has been exceptionally stable compared to its neighbors. Um, and, and I'm just, is,
0: old. I'm just so. old Joe. I'm just old Joe. 2010 seems like yesterday to me.
3: No, but I just it it is. Uh, there are a lot of coups in the region. Um, It's important to point out, it's it's exceptionally important to point out uh, how Niger came to be the center of gravity is in no small part that the center of, one of the more important centers of gravity was initially in Mauritania, and there was a coup in Mauritania, and then it shunted into Mali, and then after the uh, Tuaregs and Ansardine, the uh, Islamists showed up in in 2012, and -hmm. the coup there shunted the center of, Gravity largely into Burkina Faso, which then started to experience political instability around 2012-2013 itself, which then also further prompted this push into uh, Niger. I have a document um, from the from Africa Command, and as of 2011, Niger was second to last of eight countries in engagement priority um so it it's not it's not a given you know stability in this part of africa is unfortunately not a given uh these regimes have uh do d- very dubious human rights records don't really tolerate political dissent is niger worse than any other i would really not want to get into that, uh, but you know there there are issues. There are definitely issues, and it's worth pointing out for sure.
2: Yeah, there's there's definitely there's definitely a no set ranking structure on who the best worst option in Africa. He's absolutely correct. There's it's it's that would be hard to hard to gauge actually.
1: Why does the military have authorization to be fighting there on behalf of America? How how did that happen? I think that's another big picture question a lot of people are af- are asking. Is this a declared war?
3: So, well, the the uh, the AUMF is the the bigger, the mo- the much bigger <clears throat> issue. Oh yes, um, you know that that law was passed in the aftermath of the 9/11 terrorist attacks and was intended to give President George W. Bush the freedom to more or less go after Al Qaeda in in all of its forms anywhere it existed at the time. Uh, it has been used ever since then by by both President Obama and now by President Trump to authorize military action against associate groups uh, or groups that can be determined by a very expert um, U.S. government lawyers to be associated with global Al Qaeda. Um, this has been used to authorize. Action against Islamic State, which is an evolution of Al Qaeda in Iraq. So, and now that that there's sort of been this bunny hopping, uh, legally speaking, that since Al uh, since Islamic State in Iraq and Syria is understood to be an evolution of Al Qaeda in Iraq and covered under the 2001 Authorization of the Use of Military Force Law, that then associate groups of Islamic State are as a result, also covered by that extension. It's a uh, well, <laughs> I as I said, it's I, I laugh and I really shouldn't laugh, but it is it is how the United States has waged war against terrorists across the globe for the last 16 years, uh, and there has been no end of talk about Congress repealing that law and passing a new one to compel the United States government to come up with a new argument, uh, which has generally gained no traction, uh, mainly because I think that most politicians would prefer to stay away from this debate because it brings up really annoying questions of, well, you were in favor of this for a very long time, But now, suddenly, there's been this one thing that apparently makes it no longer okay. And, you know, that may not matter for you and me. It may not matter for the vast majority of Americans. It may not matter for the vast majority of people who live in the places that we're conducting counterterrorism operations, but it matters when it's the exact kind of soundbite that can pop up in in an attack ad. And so it matters to these people. It matters to why Lindsey Graham can say he had no idea that there were, you know, more than 800 troops you know 800 to a thousand troops in niger one day and then a week later he can say uh we need more troops in niger we definitely need more troops in niger i mean that's how this happens so. mm-hmm.
1: all right listeners we're going to pause here for a quick word from our sponsors we'll be back after this hey everyone Thank you for listening to War College. You are back on with Derek Gannon and Joseph Trevithick and we are talking about America's wars in Africa. So Derek, where does the where does the buck stop militarily? I mean obviously with the president, right And there's a whole me- there's a whole mess of people in Washington, but uh, who's running the show on the ground there? well to I, I want to touch on the authorized use of military force for just a second uh,
2: if I could. Definitely. Uh, that authorized use of military force against, in the t- even in the title, tells you exactly how how broad-spectrum it is. It's authorized use of military force against terrorist organizations, and that was written into law the 18th of September 2001, literally a, not less than a week after 9/11. And since then, the AUMF, as it's been parsed down, is literally the global war on terror. It is an open bounty on any, and and what was touched on was, and on any Al Qaeda affiliated terrorist groups. It's just in the 16 years that this blanket uh, de- war decree of a global war on terrorism has been around, it's just kind of absorbed new terrorist organizations instead of just al-qaeda affiliates as a whole uh for a, for instance in 2008 as al-shabab uh harakat al Shabaab in somalia had yet to p- pledge their loyalty to al-qaeda central and they're more of a of a uh, uh eastern regional terrorist organization trying to create an african caliphate and in exactly. the early 2000 you know in the early 2009s i believe the then leader of the al-qaeda or excuse me of al Shabaab. uh, Al-Shabaab, uh pledges loyalty to Al-Qaeda, which split that terrorist organization in two because half wanted to stay national for an African caliphate. The other guys wanted to go pro and go international. So the, the AUMF is is literally what we call the global war on terror. It is an open-ended decree from George, President Bush that the Obama administration and, and, what, and, and what has just been mentioned, the Trump administration has literally used and has touched little now with that being said where the buck stops with with it politically obviously is with the senate armed, armed services oversight committee if, if they're not getting these weekly daily monthly briefings on special operations and special forces missions specifically in africa then maybe maybe these folks should not be sending their interns to some of these meetings and actually listen to what's been going what is going on in these closed-door sessions as far as militarily where does the buck stops the buck always stops at the department of defense obviously and the command and if you really want to get technical the commander in chief is overall authority over the united states military we know that but militarily where the buck stops and where the information flow i think is bottlenecking as it always has uh, and it's not to their it's not their fault there's a lot of information coming through these doors is the, literally the pentagon itself and how do you deal with every other week there's you know, either we are you know uh, Two DEFCONs away from launching a a first strike on North Korea to the very next thing is that we're that Lindsey Graham comes out of a closed door session with General Mathis. And all of a sudden in in an ad hoc press briefing says you're going to expect to see more special operations and U.S. military actions in Africa, not less. And also alluded to the fact that they'd be they're actually going to have a meeting. Uh, and changing the rules of engagement for advisors that are already on the ground to where instead of a defensive posture, meaning if you feel that your life is in danger or threat, you can engage a target. Now to where all that you're actively looking at is in- involved with, engaged and or supporting a terrorist organization, you can openly engage them. That, to me, is a declaration of a low intensity conflict, otherwise known as a war. But that's my opinion. But that's not what was on paper. Uh, the the military. Uh, there's a lot of covering up, uh, you know, these risk assessments. Was the team prepared? Was the team underprepared? Did they lack combat experience? Which to me, to me, my my point to that, my counterpoint to that is I know of several of my close friends and several of members of the of the teams of Green Berets that infiltrated north Af- northern Afghanistan. Uh, as America's response in October of 2001 that had little to no combat experience and routed and destroyed the Taliban in eight weeks. So that argument doesn't hold water with when you talk about special operations and special forces soldiers in general. Uh, as far as as far as far where the buck stops, it's, it's always – I'm not saying that the teams can run amok without any oversight. The buck militarily is going to stop with SOC-Africom. It's going to stop with SOC-Africom and then the Pentagon itself and – in essence, Special Operations Command, uh, along with the major commands, such as the Department of Defense, uh, really need to kind of figure out, are we briefing Congress good enough, which I tend to believe, having spent 16 years in special operations and in the military, the amount of paperwork that I've had to write for after action reviews, I hope someone's reading those. So there's where, this is where we're in the gray zone. We don't really know right now. This is a new war this is a new battlefront that a lot of Americans don't know. And as Jim pointed out, we've been in Africa since, for decades. I mean, honestly, since the 60s, it's been it was a huge Cold War uh, proxy, you know, tug of war battleground, uh, 60s and the 70s. And then, you know, uh, China, Russia and India and the United States started looking at Africa as a really, really, really good strategic uh, natural resource resource grab. So, you know, the the permanent five. Of the United States United Nations Security Council, which involves the major first worlders, if you will, have been involved with their fingers in Africa for a while. So where does uh, that's a great question. I don't know if I could even answer it or have. Where does the buck stop and how how do we deal with the fallout from that? It doesn't sound like you guys are
0: describing any kind of clear and present danger to the United States, right?
2: Why are we there? Why are we there? It does not. There is there is no clear and present danger that I can see other than already mitigated uh, positions, you know, uh, stopgaps put in place that I see to the to the sovereignty. If we're going to use large words of the homeland or the United States, what I see is an operation and a mission. With the heavy use of, like I, you know, these these green berets who are somewhat—and I know this is a weird term—somewhat of an armed anthropologist themselves to go in there and assess the situation and, and try to build up a host nation itself. Now that is a small footprint. Uh, I think the you have to look at. You have to look at a couple mitigating factors. One, I'll, I'll be political for a second. You have to look at uh, the 2014 uh, cease of op- combat operations in Afghanistan was a huge win f- for uh, for the Obama administration and a lot of his his base. However, that money had to go somewhere. You, that 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 money had to go somewhere. That 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 the funds for Operation Enduring Freedom Afghanistan were shifted. And correct me if I'm wrong, Jim. Were shifted to. Initially, the Horn of Africa for the Siege of SOdaF HOA, which is a combined joint uh, Special Operations Task Force and the, the Horn of Africa, but got an influx of not only, not only funding and equipment but troop count from Operation Enduring Freedom Afghanistan, which was then shifted over to Africa under the moniker of Operation Enduring Freedom Trans-Sahara. And under this blanket AUMF, like have as many missions against counterterrorism missions have started, Operation Juniper Shield came of that. So yeah, you know, I mean, it I mean, was
3: coming. It was coming a bit before then too, and and because you you saw it in, as the drawdown, because the drawdown in Afghanistan had been discussed for a long time, and so then that that emphasis shifted, and and you know the big way you saw this, and you just mentioned it there about the about the influx in, in troop count was that when uh, third special forces group, the army's third special forces group, more or less got freed up from this this thing in Afghanistan, uh, they were immediately retasked to North yeah. and West Africa, and they which, became which the primary was, troop provider there.
2: Which was their original area of operations prior exactly, to that. Exactly,
3: yeah. Uh,
2: so, look, uh, please tell me that I'm wrong, but what you both
0: have said, it sounds to me like they're there because the money had to go somewhere, the momentum had to go somewhere, and the bureaucracy is running on autopilot.
3: I would say uh, that, that a lot of that's a lot of that is correct in a way, in but a it's way. also but it's also long been the position of the United States and this is this is a cold war mentality. It's long been the position of the United States that stable regions are in US interests. And uh, if you want to pick unstable regions, I mean, you could do you could do a lot worse than than picking North and West Africa. And I think, rightly, some time ago, it was became at least in sort of dark corners of the Pentagon and of the State Department that that Africa was going to become this sort of perpetual nightmare. And if if there's something that's running on autopilot, it's the idea that we need to help in Africa. There's also a really nasty post-colonial legacy in Africa, which, which uh, impacts just how much uh, Westerners especially can do uh, visibly. And uh, beyond needing to do something, it's still been this, this operational backwater. And it's, it's long been that way. When, when U.S. Africa Command was created – uh, at the tail end of the Bush administration, when the when the idea for a dedicated command for Africa was was formalized, um, which came into being fully in 2008, um, it was billed as, as something that was going to be totally different from all of the other regional military commands that we have. And there was going to be this heavy integration with both the State Department and with the U.S. Agency for International Development. And this was exceptionally important because people, People sort of were of the view that the security component was important, but it was still relatively mired compared to the fact that significant parts of of Africa just did not have clean drinking water and significant parts of Africa simply did not have access to basic medical support. And that if you were going to talk about uh, drivers for for security problems, people without clean drinking water and people without access to basic government services who have you know, only experienced weak institutions, well, those people are are the bread and butter of militant groups, and not even just terrorist groups. I mean, mil- just militant groups up, down, and sideways on the spectrum. I mean, if you want to recruit people, people who are not starving, because starving people can't fight, but on the verge of starving, and who are tired of seeing uh, leadership figures driving around in their Mercedes, well, there is a ton of those people in Africa, because that's sort of the way it is at the moment, and I think somebody said we really need to do something about that. And then somebody said, "Yes, we are now going to do something about that." And now that's been what's sort of running on autopilot. Is this? Mm-hmm. Is that? You know, and you hear it at every single one of these official briefings. And they and people say, "What are we doing in Africa?" They ask this. You ask the question you've asked: What are we doing in Africa? And they give the stock answer in this bureaucratic speak. You know, we are building partner capacity. We are supporting, you know, the development of democratic institutions. We are doing all these things. And, you know, never really getting down is the nitty gritty of how mm-hmm. and what are your metrics. And right now, the most, the most common metric, and this is something I've heard, especially from the development community, friends of mine who, who worked in Africa, uh, they say the metric is money spent. It's always money spent. And that's an exceptionally common metric in international development. Um, it's, you know, it's not an uncommon metric in military operations. Uh, money spent, money spent. Um, and the easiest way to do that, of course, is to uh, plus up on overhead. And so you hear guys talk about USAID projects, and they're 70% overhead. Um, so you build a well, but you're also staying in a village private security. And most of it actually goes into keeping your guys pretty comfortable in africa rather than building the actual well and so you know this is where the disconnect occurs in the overarching strategy such as it is and how it gets implemented on the ground and i think we're starting to see a certain amount of that just in the way that the the Pentagon, the Pentagon really wants the public to understand what we're doing in Africa. They, of course they do. I, you know, I, I hate people saying it's like, you know, they're obfuscating and it's like, you know, there's a conspiracy or something. It's like, no, they really desperately want you to understand what the U.S. military is doing in Africa and why you should care about stability in North and West Africa, because they do care. They just can't explain it either. And that's a problem that's an that's an exceptionally significant problem if they can't explain what everybody seems to as a rule understand to be an important goal well then how do you think that translates into how the operation is being fulfilled
2: that's true i think i honestly i think the pentagon really i agree with you i think the pentagon wants desperately for us to understand them and they feel that they're speaking english but the Pentagon and, and and regular Americans speak two different languages and neither one of them can understand it or learn it because it changes almost quarterly. They really do want us to understand, but what I can tell you is from the uh, green beret perspective on the ground, these, these guys believe that their operations are, are integral to regional stability. That's why they think they're there building the wells uh, in the, the 18 deltas, the special forces medics, uh, Literally building and creating field hospitals and training up uh, specialized medics, so then they, those medics that they train can train other medics, uh, establishing medical care uh, supplies, buildings also training them to, take, to defend and attack and become a, a, a force, not unlike what we created in Chad, to protect themselves. Because Joe was correct. The United States really likes regions that are stable. Well, how do you destabilize a region that has, has been so far unstable for the last 20 years? You send in special forces. You send in these Green Berets to empower the whole local host nation by, through training of what they understand through guerrilla and irregular warfare tactics. And then they implement that into their own countries, and the men on the ground believe that what they're doing is they're creating an army so the United States military, the regular military, the tanks, helicopters, guns, and, and parachutes types of guys, don't have to put boots
1: on the ground in Africa. All right. Thank you guys so much, Derek Gannon, Joseph Trevithick. Thank you guys for coming on War College.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's show. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please leave a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. One user, Mr. Petkus, left us a five-star review. Here's what he had to say. War College is on the short list of excellent podcasts that explore our military-industrial complex. Well, we'll be trying to do more of that next week. My name is Jason Fields, and my partner on the show is Matthew Galt. We split up the producing duties ever since Bethel Hobte left us for greener pastures. You can reach us. We are at facebook.com slash college podcast. We're also on Twitter, which is at war underscore college.